The part of virtue which I haven't discussed yet are called the five precepts and they take a special place in the Buddhist practice because they're sort of the foundation for an ordinary person's life and karma support. It is sometimes said that if we didn't have the five precepts to live by, we couldn't live a good human life. Now the five precepts are things to refrain from. And the Buddha worded them in such a way that one can see that they are a training. He never had the illusion about us that we can just do things or that we must not do some things or shall not do these or others. He always had the realistic approach that we need to be trained just like we need to train ourselves in meditation and need to train ourselves in order to see reality we also need to train ourselves to live a life according to some moral precepts. But besides being a training to refrain from certain things, they are also an invitation to do the opposite. And that part of it needs to be also in looked at and then practiced. The first of the five precepts is well known to all of us it is uh, no different from what is used in Christianity and we've all heard it more than once and we may or may not have thought about it and looked at its repercussions or we may have just lamented the fact that it isn't being kept it's to undertake the training to refrain from killing any living beings. It seems that the more living beings there are on this planet, the more of them are being killed, which is only natural. However, it's the intention behind it which counts. And the difference is whether we make it our business to eliminate an ant heap which is bothering us in our garden or whether we accidentally step on an ant on the path. The accidental stepping on an ant on the path can be understood to be a lack of mindfulness where there is no evil intention, there's just um, lack of awareness whereas the other is the intention. Living beings are all living beings, human or otherwise. And we all know that it's not good to kill. That it's being done anyway is another matter. And that at times it's considered to be heroic and people get medals for it absurd 
but unfortunately true over and over again. That we refrain from that appears to be a matter of course. But there's more to that precept than just that. The opposite of killing living beings is to extend loving-kindness towards them. Loving-kindness and compassion. And this is where what are called the four Brahma-viharas come into play and where we need to have possibly a more direct understanding what the Buddha meant when he talked about these four supreme emotions. They're called Brahma-viharas, which means the divine abodes. A vihara is some place to live, and the Brahma, Brahmas, are the gods, so it's a divine abode or divine abiding. They're also called the four supreme emotions. And the Buddha said quite clearly, these are the only four emotions worth having. All others can be discarded to great advantage. Having emotions must never be confused with emotionalism. These are the emotions which give us the unlimited heart expansion which at the same time help us, helps us to expand the mind to take in all that can be taken in by infinite consciousness. Our attempt to have only these supreme emotions and thereby purify our emotions brings us to a clarification of thought. Purification of emotion brings clarification of thought. Without, without that purification, thought may be clever, logical, it may be inventive, it may have imagination, it may even be creative. It can never reach absolute truth. It has to have an underlying support system of purified emotions. Because no matter what we think we may be doing, we're living according to our emotions. And then, after having had them, we conceptualize them and explain them. First is the feeling, and then we can react to it. So with a guideline by the Buddha, which emotions are worth having, we have four which he pointed out as the only ones that we need to cultivate. Loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, 
and equanimity. Loving kindness is a word which has very little impact on most people unless they've been using it for years on end, which some of us have done. It doesn't exist in the English language. It's a made-up word. You can't find it in any dictionary. We've put a hyphen in the middle in order to make it something. The word metta, M-E-T-T-A, overpronounced and underused, means a kind of love which we just haven't got a word for. And why haven't we got a word for it? Because we don't know what it is. So we need to have an explanation. What is it? And after having had an explanation, we've got to try and practice it. And then we know for sure what it is. The word love certainly means something. We've all used it. It's also overpronounced and underused. But at least it means something. Mostly it means something which is very specific, directed to one person, two or three, or something one would like to get. More often than not, that's its most direct purpose, something to get. Now that that doesn't work on the spiritual path doesn't even need to be said. To get something has never worked in anybody's life and even less on a spiritual path. Interestingly enough, for those of you who might be having some interest in language, the word love comes from the root of lopa because in Pali the bee very often changes into V when it is Sanskrit or when it is one of the derivatives of the Sanskrit language and Lopa means greed and so we have this wonderful saying love makes the world go round and everybody actually believe that it's greed that makes the world go round because we understand love in the wrong way we have a feeling of attachment or attraction or some sort of mutual direction. Now, there's nothing wrong with mutual direction, but if that's the only love we know, we have no idea what love means. Love is a quality of the heart without any reference to another person. Either the heart's got it from cultivating it or it needs to do something about it. Intelligence is a quality of the mind. Now this intelligence that is this quality of the mind comes to the fore when one needs to understand something when one needs to connect something, when one has to do something with the mind. But the intelligence does not disappear when those tests for the mind are no longer present. 
Well, love as a quality of the heart comes to the fore when there is someone there that can be loved, but it doesn't disappear when that someone disappears. It remains exactly the same. That someone that's being loved is not being judged by the fact whether the person is lovable or wants to be loved or is going to return the love or there's something worthwhile there or whether one's love will have some kind of resultant which one is looking for none of that has any bearing on love that's all connected to greed wanting to get instead of wanting to give now love is not even concerned with giving if it is there it can't help but be given just like if there is intelligence in the mind it can't help but be used one can't all of a sudden have a stupid mind if one has an intelligent mind so if one has love in the heart the mind doesn't have to say now come on give it out it just does it there's no way it can't do it the more that is cultivated the easier it becomes and the more one gives out, the more one has. This is a law of the universe of supply and demand, which very few people ever understand or use. And it's the law of the universe which always works. When we talk about it in the context of love, I think everybody can understand it but the same law works for everything else the more love one gives out obviously the more one has but it works for everything the more one gives the more one has and yet in our materialistic society it's considered to be a very bad management plan to give out more then one gets back in. In fact, it's considered to make one bankrupt. Can one ever become bankrupt by giving out love? Just the contrary. will be bankrupt. And so many people are who can't give it. We can't think love. We've got to feel it. We can help to cultivate it by thinking it and understanding that this is a necessary way of development, but eventually we've got to feel it. And how does one go about feeling it? Whether there's somebody there that is really lovable or not. Now this business about somebody being lovable it's a total myth, of course. Nobody is totally lovable, including ourselves. And don't we all know it? So how could we expect to find somebody 
other than ourselves who is totally lovable. But we're always hoping for the best. And then when we have decided we found somebody, we're very surprised when after a short while we find out that that person also isn't totally lovable. And what a misery that entails then. And then we start all over again. But basically, what everybody wants is to be loved. Now, the absurdity of that is easily understood when we remember that if one is being loved, it's the love that somebody else has in their hearts. It's got nothing to do with our own heart. All it does is give an ego support Look at me, I'm being loved. I must be lovable. And then that person changes his or her mind, as all minds are wont to do, and then all of a sudden, look at me, I'm no longer lovable. And it's a tragedy. The whole thing is a total absurdity. Because it's got nothing to do with love. It's all based on ego support. If I'm having somebody who loves me, my ego is being supported. And if not, all of a sudden my ego feels small and ugly and has to get itself back together again. And tries to do that by finding somebody else. It's, uh, first of all, terribly energy consuming, but also it doesn't produce anything. Because our own lovability is not being cultivated. If we look at it from the different side, from the other side of this whole um, enterprise, and see that the only thing that's worthwhile cultivating is our own ability to love, then we will also find that it doesn't have to be dependent upon one. As long as it depends upon one, the near enemy of love is working for us which is affection and attachment the far enemy is of course hate that's very easy but the near enemy is affection and attachment and that's very difficult to see because it looks so loving I want you with me all the time isn't that loving but it isn't actually what it does it creates dependency again. And with that dependency immediately comes fear. Now, fear is hate. So that kind of love has the impurity of hate in it. We don't hate the other person. But what we do is we hate the idea that the other person may get lost die, change their mind, disappear, no longer want to be loved, no longer love us back. And with that fear syndrome included in our love relationship, it's never totally peaceful, it's never totally satisfying, it always have, has disquiet and anxiety in it. And because of that, then underneath it all, we do know that everything is impermanent and we're quite aware of the fact 
that minds and emotions change all the time and not only that but bodies change dramatically they die at the wrong moment and all that sort of thing with all that we never find a situation where our heart is totally satisfied and some people try to remedy that by finding new loves going all over the place finding somebody new well that's a bit frowned upon these days not so long ago it wasn't now it's frowned upon others put a shield around their emotions they don't want to know about it because it's painful and substitute the thinking process now with the thinking process and a good intelligent mind we can come to logical conclusions which don't hurt the openness of the loving heart when it has attachment embedded in it always hurts and therefore it's never satisfied but the openness of the loving heart without attachment in it not only not hurts but it brings a great deal of safety and security an underlying feeling of being at ease an underlying feeling of not being in danger now that feeling of not being in danger comes from the fact that a person who truly loves without attachment knows no matter what happens their reactions are going to be wholesome and profitable there's going to be no rejection no dislike no resistance so they feel without danger a person whose love has only to do either with attachment is discriminative some people are okay and others aren't usually far fewer are okay than aren't and also realizes that there is very often the opportunity to be other than loving no feeling of safety if the situation wants it their heart becomes angry and resisting and hateful all of us have a heart in which would fit millions of people we usually allow one or two or three to come in maybe a few to visit sometimes and another few to just stand at the extreme edge of it that cannot be satisfying to oneself because there's room for everybody but what we usually do we act as if we were an immigration department 
<laughs> anybody's ever been to an immigration department which I've had the misfortune to do many times you know what goes on there it's not very friendly to say the least and doesn't matter what country one is in a check one's credentials is one really not going to be a burden to to them to the country is one going to be an asset to them can they actually warrant one's entry without having to worry about one's livelihood and one's uh, morality well that's the same what we do we check the credentials and since we're never quite sure whether our discriminating judgment is quite correct we're far more inclined to um, reject the entry application than to grant it we're not so sure whether we really know and we don't really want to have the burden of anyone who is not going to be an asset to us I mean this is how immigration departments were started because this is what we do with our own hearts of course we can't now change the whole department there in the government but we can certainly change our heart and the more hearts we change the more of us change our hearts the easier life becomes not only for us but for everybody who comes into contact with us when we realize we are benefiting particularly ourselves the first person who is benefited by it is of course the one who loves not the one who is being loved but always the one who loves there is not a lot of fear because of that because uh, people think they're going to be vulnerable to that other person that's only possible if we have that syndrome of you must love me back and I'm going to keep you the cultivation in one's own heart of that quality obviously also brings about the removal of other qualities it's not possible to have opposing qualities in the heart at the same time and the more we cultivate the positive one the less chance the negative ones have to enter and to make themselves at home there if we consider our heart our home base and there isn't any other surely it would stand to reason for the most reasoning and logical mind to get that home base in order and not to be afraid of consequences which are only dreamt up by a mind which is lacking the clarity which the purity of emotion supplies the purity of emotion is the one that brings about the depth understanding so if we have also often wondered why it's so difficult 
to love people when we see their faults we haven't really looked at ourselves if we can't love ourselves with all our faults and possibly in spite of all our faults we don't know yet what it means to love I can often I think that we could use a mother with a number of children as an example because some children are a lot of bother, bother and very difficult for their mothers but it's very difficult not to love your children no matter what they do now we ourselves have to be our own mother and our own child the mother loves the child even when the child is doing all sorts of wrong things well this child in us does a lot of wrong things it gets upset and it gets angry and it doesn't practice when it should and all the rest of it but mother can still love and if we haven't learned to love ourselves in spite of all those drawbacks and negativities we will not be able to love others in spite of their drawbacks and negativities it's home base the heart it's where it starts from and we have a beautiful saying in the teaching of Jesus which says love thy neighbor as thyself everybody knows it but who can do it and who is even thinking about doing it love your neighbor oh sure i'm going to try the same way you love yourself first one has to know how one loves oneself before one can even get an inkling how to love one's neighbor if we don't love this person whom we know with all his or her difficulties sorrows fears anxieties and also of course good qualities we can't love that person how can we hope to love others where we can see so many things they oughtn't to be doing this is where we start it's a training and it's a training which needs to be done on the spiritual path we haven't got a spiritual path if we don't cultivate heart and mind we consist of both how can we hope to have one foot on the path and the other one dragging behind the path will be extremely difficult in fact we won't be able to walk along it in the west we are more inclined to develop 
mind. But <coughs> if we don't have both as a basis for practice, we'll always be feeling bereft. If we only develop the heart, there's no wisdom in it. There's devotion and there may be faith, there may be love, but no wisdom, no understanding. And if we only develop mind, there may be understanding, there may be some insights, but if there's no heart in it, how can it satisfy? If we look upon the spiritual life as a pathway, which is so often called, we will understand immediately that we have to walk along it with both legs. There's no doubt about that. Compassion helps us greatly. Far enemy of compassion is cruelty, near enemy is pity. I mentioned that once already. Compassion is with feeling. Come with passion, feeling, empathy. How do we get compassion? Only by knowing our own dukkha and realizing everybody else has it. In fact, most people might have more than we ourselves if we were to analyze it. We don't know exactly how much dukkha they have. They might put a smiling face on it. They might pretend they haven't got any. They mightn't want to cry on our shoulder. That's nice. They want to spare us. But it's obvious. There's no life without Dukkha. And only when we accept our own and feel for ourselves that it's difficult to be a human being to make a success of being a human being not a success of being a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that just a success of being a human being difficult enough in spite of all the impediments and can have some compassion for these impediments and some, some compassion for the difficulties that we encounter to overcome them immediately will have compassion for others. They're doing exactly the same thing. And again, we don't have to discriminate between this one is doing it and that one isn't. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's having impediments and everybody who is not given in completely to depression is trying to make the best of it. Live a life which does not deteriorate. Compassion can often be the starting point for love. It's sometimes easier to arouse compassion so that love can follow. Love is a, a stronger togetherness, a stronger warmth. Compassion is, has more equanimity in it. 
so it's a little easier to arouse. If in our meditation we have had a totality experience, meaning that we have actually experienced that there are no separations in this universe, it's much easier to have love and compassion for others because we no longer feel so separated and distinct from another person. We know that all the the wholeness of existence includes us ourselves and within that <coughs> there isn't actually a me and a you but there is Dukkha. That is. Whether we've had that or not, the cultivation of these emotions are inescapable on a spiritual path. We cannot refrain from that cultivation. A joy with others is also much easier if we've had a totality experience because we'll understand without even trying that we ourselves don't have to have that joyful experience as long as there is a joyful experience. Now obviously the uh, far enemy is envy. The near enemy is hypocrisy. Pretending. I'm so glad your meditation is good. And reality, I'm thinking, I wish mine were too. But the feeling which arises when one knows that there's no distinction is one of being joyful about a joyful occasion because it has brought joy to the universe and all of us partake of it. Envy brings negativity to the universe. Now if we could ever get that straight and it's not very difficult to understand but to practice it we could get that straight that whatever we put out becomes part of universal existence and the more positivities we put out the more positive will be the universe we live in and vice versa. The more negativities we put out, the more negative the universe is that we live in. And at this point in time, the universe that we find ourselves in has unfortunately taken a turn to the negative. It's constantly changing. It's constantly in a different situation. It's been much more negative than it is now. But it's up to each one of us to look after that aspect because all of our output remains there and becomes part of universal consciousness. I have already spoken about the fourth one of the supreme emotions, equanimity, which has anxiety and restlessness as its far enemy and indifference as its near enemy. 
The near enemy is always the one that looks so similar but is entirely different in its quality. But it appears as if it were the same. Now a person who is indifferent appears to be equanimous. They don't get excited. The reason they don't get excited could of course be, would be lovely, if that person is so highly developed that their even-mindedness is no longer affected either with anger or irritation, dislike or wanting to have, in other words, a non-returner. Few and far between. If we meet up with somebody who appears to be equanimous, doesn't get excited, and we don't know that person very well, we'll have to give that person the benefit of the doubt. But most people who appear that way have used indifference as a shield in order to have protection from their very unpleasant emotions. In other words, they're usually people who have a lot of hate. Hate is extremely unpleasant for oneself and therefore indifference is used as a shield. It's quite all right to, to have a person like that at least they don't start becoming abusive which people who deal with emotionalism do. But indifference is without love. Indifference is cold, hard, and removed from feeling. In other words, such a person becomes one who is not in touch with his or her feelings, and therefore only half alive. And a person who is like that knows it. They have no doubt. They don't know particularly the word indifference, maybe, but they know that life is not complete. That they are very often, practically all the time, a spectator and not a participant. And it doesn't feel comfortable at all. It feels uneasy because the heart is not involved. If one becomes aware of that in oneself, one can do something about it. If one is unaware, naturally, one can't do anything. Most people can do something about it quite quickly because it is understood then by such a person that that shield, that protection is totally unnecessary. What are we protecting ourselves from? Only from our own unsavory emotions. We have a much better way of doing dealing with them. We substitute them with the good ones. Just as we've learned in meditation to substitute our disruptions and uh, our distractions with the meditation subject, so we learn to substitute our unwholesome emotions with the wholesome ones. That's practice. 
the other one trying to shield oneself, to protect oneself by becoming, getting out of touch with one's feelings and having an indifferent uh, stance is a, um, it's a running away and uh, trying not to deal with one's emotions. Everybody has also unwholesome ones. And particularly, of course, with other people. That's our biggest problem. Cats, dogs, trees, flowers, stars, sun, moon, furniture, cars. Well, let's exempt cars. Um, they are okay. At least they don't talk back. And they usually don't do anything terrible. Cars often get kicked. But people talk back. They say the things we don't want to hear. They do the things we don't want them to do. And they get in our way. They are sometimes demanding, sometimes aggressive. And so, and particularly, they are non-loving. That's the worst of it, isn't it? They don't love us. Well, the last one is easily taken care of. There's a surefire remedy for that one we just start loving them and we no longer worry about the fact whether they love us and as a matter of course of, uh, what follows is that if we love enough the reaction is usually also the same but we are bound to have unwholesome emotions with regard to other people one of the worst mistakes we can make is to justify them. Say we've got to get angry because that person is utterly stupid or nobody likes her. Why, how could I? That's also popular. None of that has any good result for us. It just justifies our behavior what we can do and learn to do and it's a continuous training and it doesn't always work but it certainly starts working when we practice enough is that when we recognize our own dislike we quickly try to change it into something else now dislike not so easy to change into love it's the exact opposite but it can change, be changed into compassion because if somebody behaves badly we can be quite sure that that person is very unhappy yes no doubt about it that a happy person will not become abusive or angry or distant. A happy person exudes happiness and there's nothing to get angry about. So when we are confronted with somebody that we get angry at, we can see that that person behaving in a way which is making us angry. We can be sure that person is unhappy. Now we could already assume that from everybody, but in this case it's even more important 
because now we can try compassion. They wouldn't behave that way if they were really happy. Some people are perpetually unhappy and perpetually behaving in a manner which makes one angry. If we perpetually try to give them love and understanding, we may be able actually to have a favorable reaction. But that's not the reason for doing it. Because that's getting clinging to the result. The only reason for doing it is because we are cultivating love in our own heart. We're trying to educate our heart. Now, to educate our mind, we've got innumerable colleges and uh, universities and uh, technical institutes and hundreds of different uh, chairs that teach us anything we want to know about our mind. Who teaches us anything about our heart? The college has yet to be invented. Maybe one day it will be. Religion was supposed to take, do that job. Somehow or other, it got lost on the way somewhere. We've got to do it ourselves. And in the last analysis, everybody's got to do it themselves anyway. But we do uh, benefit from a few pointers. So the confrontation with other people is our greatest learning experience. And we can notice in our own heart how we use sometimes indifference because we don't want to be touched or sometimes get irritated or sometimes even the dislike arises. Dukkha in ourselves, dukkha in others, compassion. It works. From that compassion, it's much, much easier to have love arise. Love which is not passion, but warmth. Warmth and contact, not physical, a contact of heart and an embracing which brings a soothing vibration into that confrontation. It's noticeable even for the most untrained mind that such a soothing vibration is present. Highly impossible that anybody would not notice it. And that, of course, changes the whole confrontation. It's up to each of one of us to do that. We are the meditators, so we have to be the ones that learn to have the confrontation with another person on a level of the loving and soothing vibration. Words are sometimes helpful. They are not entirely necessary, particularly in the language of the heart. Language of the heart does not always require words. Sometimes the words can be helpful, <coughs> particularly if there has been a great deal of misunderstanding before. The whole aspect of the purification of emotion boils down to the fact that we ourselves are responsible for what we feel 
And if we don't feel anything, we need to get rid of the shield we have built around our own unpleasant emotions because otherwise we will never get at those which are so helpful. Nobody can do it for us. We can't wait for somebody to come along. It's sitting within, deeply within. Everybody has it. Everybody can do it. But we need to drop our judgmental attitude. That does not mean that we drop our discrimination. If we can no longer discriminate between good and bad, we won't be able to keep the five precepts. But we don't have to judge. Things are as they are. We know what's good and what's bad. But it has no impact upon our heart base. But more four more precepts to talk about. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. yes. But not to misunderstand the non-judgment with non-discrimination. Sometimes people think that we don't judge. We also don't know what's going on. It would be dreadful. We do know what's going on, but we don't have to uh, give it a uh, negative implication. I'll talk about the next one and maybe leave the other three for the morning. Yes, I think I'll do that. Because the next one I've already talked about. The second precept is to undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Which means, of course, not stealing, but it also goes into a finer detail not to take anything that doesn't belong to one. Even the smallest Now, the Buddha said it can be considered stealing when it has even a small value. It has to have some value in order to be considered stealing. But the opposite of that is generosity. And I've talked about all generosity already. Instead of taking something, whatever it is, and trying to get, we train ourselves in trying to give. Which is the spiritual aspect of life. It's the letting go aspect. It's not to have more and to amass and to keep. We're only here for a visit. Everything we have is on loan. We can't keep a thing. We can't keep our love we've got to give it we can't keep our material possessions 
they all go and either break down, disappear, or belong to somebody else. And we can't keep this body. It's going to be buried or cremated. So what is there to worry about and to try and safeguard? We've got locks on the doors, locks on the windows. People do steal. And we've got locks on our hearts. What do they steal? Maybe they steal high sets, And maybe they steal our love. They're welcome to it, aren't they? And the same goes for the things. They're welcome to them. Do they need them more than we do? Maybe, who knows. But one thing is for sure. Karma has resultants. The only thing that we need watching is our own karma and therefore our own resultants. The only thing that's important is that we give and not take. What somebody else is doing, it will only hurt us if we react to it with hurt. Otherwise, it's just happening. That's all. And if it is unwholesome, the person who's doing that is going to have an unwholesome result from it. We may have compassion for that. So if somebody steals from us, the only reaction which has any spiritual basis is compassion. The poor person is going to have some unfavorable results. In our own case, only giving will be the letting go aspect of that which we like to surround ourselves with in order to make the ego seem a little larger and a little safer. People often feel a little bigger and a little safer when the bank account is a little bigger and a little safer. But in reality, it makes no difference. The only safety is in purity the purity of the heart and the purity of the mind. Otherwise, no safety can be found. Even if oneself has not lost everything in this lifetime, we can go back just a few years and know stories of people who've lost everything and their lives are all right. They've lost this, they've lost that, they've lost loved ones, they've lost money, they've lost health, and maybe all that dukkha was even productive of insight. Instead of losing it, let's give it. Instead of being forced to give it away, when our will is being read, let's give it away now. 
instead of being forced because somebody steals it let's give it voluntarily and the safety and the good feeling that we get right then and there by giving is the karmic resultant and here again this law of nature operates and whether believe it or not it does the more we give away the more we've got For some reason, the universe operates in that way. If we voluntarily give without any thought of a reward, but just give in order to share, in order to help, in order to show appreciation and gratitude, we get back more than we gave. you could try it out if you like most people are scared to try it but once having tried it one finds that it works it is all materiality all corporality exists in the universe everybody has part in it nobody's got to really scrounge for it It's just that nobody believes it and therefore tries to keep what is mine. Nothing is mine. It's all universal existence. And with that in mind, generosity becomes easy. And also, with that, non-separation and understanding of the totality Generosity is easy without wanting gratitude, looking for gratitude, and without even thinking of if I do good, I'll have good, without even having any thought like that. Generosity becomes a natural way of being because one no longer has such a strong sense of this is mine. It needs to be used. Whatever there is in this universe, it needs to be used for the best possible purpose, which one can think of. And if it is used for the best possible purpose, it will by itself multiply. And it will give its good resultance to the one who's been giving these thoughts that generosity generates these feelings that it generates are in itself already the reward we need no gratitude the Buddha said there are three rarities in the world one is the arising of a Buddha Second one is a person who will do a kindness without wanting any reward. And the third one is a person who is grateful for such a kindness. Well, we're not going to be Buddha, are we? But we can do the other two, or at least practice. And if we do, 
we will be rare people in this universe. Rare, so rare, that the resultants of that karma will be remarkable. Doing a kindness without looking for any reward and being grateful for such a kindness. These are rare emotions, the Buddha said. That's enough for this evening. Maybe you'd like to ask some questions. Sorry, I didn't catch it. What was that? You talked about the world getting more negative. How to deal with that? How to deal with that? No, I didn't say how to deal with that. I said it is our responsibility to put out into the universe positivities because that whatever we give out, any emotion, any thought, becomes part of universal consciousness and therefore, if it's negative, universal consciousness becomes more negative. Yes. Self-esteem versus ego. Self-esteem A sense of self-worth, is that it? Is self-esteem a sense of self-worth? Yeah? Okay. A sense of self-worth is also based on self-confidence. sense of self-worth is actually necessary as um, a trigger for the spiritual life. Because if we don't have any sense of self-worth, we don't think we can do it. It's difficult. And since we all have a self, until we're fully enlightened, we might as well think it's worthwhile. I mean, if we ha- all have it, and have that illusion of it, it's much more productive to have one in a worthwhile illusion than one which is extremely negative. And because self-worth also endangers, um, um, it bring, brings with it a sense of confidence. It is a positive way of dealing with the difficulties of this part. Ego is the underlying factor for any kind of self-idea, um, whether it's self-worth or self-unworth, doesn't matter. Ego underlies all of that. There's a story, the time of the Buddha, a uh, group of monks went for a walk in the forest and they were attacked by bandits and the bandits wanted some money and the monks didn't have any. They didn't carry any money around. So the head bandit said, I will take one of you as a hostage so that we can then get some money 
for your ransom. And he said to the head monk, you can choose which one you want to send along for ransom. Well, the head monk didn't answer. So the bandit got quite impatient and angry and said, why don't you answer, why don't you pick one? And he said, well, if I pick one of them, it would seem that one of them is worth less than me. If I pick myself, it would seem that I'm worth less than them. If I say that we're all worth the same, then we would think that we are all somebody. So there's nothing to say. (laughs) So the bandit was so flabbergasted (laughs) that he left. (laughs) So whether we think we're worth more or less, it doesn't matter, it's all ego-based. This head monk obviously didn't have that problem. Anything else? Any other questions? Yes. Others don't like us to seem so self-confident. Is that right? Self-confidence is something which arises from from practice. If it arises from a superiority feeling, it's uh, very transparent and one can look right through it and it's quite unpleasant. But if it arises from practice, it has a basis which is quite uh, rock-like. And those people who haven't got it often feel envious, jealous, or sometimes also they feel um, worthless because they haven't got it. So they don't like it. It shows them up. They think. It's all imagination, of course. But this is why people who have self-confidence are sometimes disliked by others who haven't got it. I, I, I said about that, that others don't like it. Second jhana brings self-confidence, yes. I didn't do it, no. No, no, it's got to be done. <laughs> I, I, uh, I mentioned it, I remember that, but uh, it seemed like there was that much to do that it just seemed too much. I can't explain it. It's got to be done. Okay, we'll stand up, stretch our legs a moment. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment.
Think of yourself as your own mother and your own child. Have the motherly feeling for yourself, loving and protective, caring and concerned, and accepting. Let these feelings pervade you, surround you, soothe you, Think of yourself as the mother of the person sitting nearest you in this hall. Loving, caring and concerned. Totally accepting. Now think of yourself as the mother of everyone here, large family, everybody, the child, embracing everyone with the love of a mother. Now think of yourself as a mother of your parents. Reverse the role. You are the mother. They are your children. You are accepting and loving, caring and concerned, helping. Your love all pervading, all embracing.
think of yourself as a mother of those who are nearest and dearest to you. All of them. The one who cares and is loving is a love all-pervading without expecting to get the same in return. Think of yourself as the mother of all your friends. Accept them into your heart without reservation. Love and care for them. of anyone whom you don't like very much who may be difficult for you think of yourself as that person's mother children are often difficult and yet they are beloved love that person as if he or she were your own child Think of all the people you know. You've either seen them, spoken to them, met them somewhere, or just know about them. Imagine yourself the mother of all these people. Accepting, accepting them all into your heart embracing them all loving them being caring and concerned and helpful wanting their well-being
open your heart as wide as you can embracing beings everywhere those we see, those we don't see those we know and those we don't know recognizing the family of beings letting the heart reach out and speak to all of them Put your attention back on yourself. Recognize the love that a mother has for her child as the love that you have for yourself. Fill yourself and surround yourself with this love. giving a feeling of well-being and safety. Of buoyancy and uplift. May beings everywhere love each other. 